Amen. As you turn to Mark chapter 6, apologize for the small words on the screen. We're checking your vision. Make sure it's all good. Get that fixed by next week for sure. Mark chapter 6 in the in your Bibles is where we're at. Uh, we pick up where we left off today with the story of the death of John the Baptist. Uh, if you remember, John led off the Gospel of Mark, as Tom read at the beginning of the the service, um, let off the, the gospel of Mark with his ministry. And if we glean some other information from the go- other gospels, we find that um, we find other things out about John. We find out that the, the birth of John the Baptist was miraculous as well. He was born to parents who were beyond childbearing uh, age, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Um, and so he received a message from the angel of the Lord also that they would have this son and that they, he would have this mission in life to point the way to the Messiah. Um, we find out that Elizabeth was also the cousin of, of Jesus' mother, Mary. And so you have this uh, cool scene from the Gospel of Luke where uh, Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, six months earlier than Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, are hanging out one day and the, the Holy Spirit fills John the Baptist in the womb of his mother, and he's leaping and kicking and dancing around because he's in the presence of his cousin, the Messiah. Just uh, amazing things going on before the, the two young men are ever born. We fast forward a few decades, and John has begun his ministry in the wilderness, and we read in Mark that one day his cousin Jesus comes up, the Messiah shows up, and we know from Mark that John baptizes him, but we also know from John's gospel they had a little bit more interaction than just Jesus being baptized by John. Now, one day Jesus shows up and John calls out to all who are around him about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know at some point some of John's followers, disciples, began to, to leave him and go follow Jesus. And John had his blessing on that. Yes, don't, don't follow me, follow him. He's the one I'm here for. He's the one I've been pointing to. We also find out more of John's teaching in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, as well as one of the more famous statements about John, John 3.30. He must, where John the Baptist said this, he must increase, but I must decrease. So in John the Baptist, you have a man who, by God's grace and power by God's Spirit, lived a life devoted to pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to the Messiah, And when his ministry is at its peak, like swarms of people are coming to him, to hear him proclaim the gospel, to hear him proclaim truth about God, to hear him proclaim this repentance and be baptized, John pulls back and says, no, 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 it's not about me, it's about him. He must increase, I must decrease. And so it's not surprising when Jesus says this about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So he's got this miraculous birth, this relationship with Jesus, and this ministry. His life was given to pointing people to the coming Messiah, this forerunner of Christ. Well, one day, after Jesus has come, John ends up in prison. Mark alludes to this. We saw this in Mark 1.14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark just kind of says this. John was arrested. He didn't tell us why, what happened, uh, what took place that caused him to be arrested. And Mark continues with this gospel. It's not until Mark 6 that you get this flashback scene where Mark goes back and gives us the details and the story surrounding the arrest of John. And that's where we pick up today, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. 
For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Father, we, we ask for your help this morning to, to see this gruesome, bloody, evil story. To see it in light of who you are, to see it in light of who we are. And to have you speak truth to our hearts that would change us, transform us. Teach us this morning. Illuminate the scriptures. Help us to see we need you. Our hearts are so prone to wonder. Our hearts are so prone to be distracted. And so help us this morning see beyond the distractions of life, see beyond the distractions of the moment, and to see Jesus and see the gospel and see your truth. Do this good work in us for your glory alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you see the name Herod in the New Testament, you have to know there were primarily four Herods who showed up in the scriptures. I have a, a slide that shows those if you can possibly see it. Uh, Herod the Great uh, is the first Herod that shows up in Matthew 2. He's the Herod that is surrounding the birth of Jesus. The wise men came to Herod looking for the baby who's been born. He's going to be king. Of course, Herod is certifiably crazy in every way. He goes nuts thinking that there might be another king who's born that could claim his throne. He couldn't find out exactly where the baby boy was, and so Herod is so sick. He goes to Bethlehem and slaughters every baby under the age of two in order to wipe out the Messiah. That's sick. Jesus, along with his parents, Joseph and Mary, had been warned by an angel to get out of Bethlehem and they flee and they go to Egypt where they stay until the boy is older. Herod the Great killed several of his sons and anyone else he thought was trying to take away his power. He was paranoid. He was ruthless. Eventually, this man died, and his territory was divided by Rome into four different segments to be managed or ruled over by four of his sons that remained. Now, look, Rome is in charge, right? But they allowed these Jewish men to rule over these regions as a way to be a bridge between the Romans and the Jewish people. Like, Rome is still definitely in charge, but let, we'll put one of your people in charge so you feel better about the fact that we're in charge. And so these four sons of Herod ruled over these remaining areas that were left behind when Herod the Great died. One of these sons was Herod Antipas, who's the, the Herod in the story that we're looking at today. And this is the Herod that shows up in the rest of the gospel stories. 
You also had to have Herod Agrippa who had James killed in Acts chapter 12. He was about to have Peter killed in the same way, but he ended up dying. And then you have his son, Herod Agrippa II, who Paul gave his testimony to at the end of the book of Acts. Now, Herod Antipas, the Herod of this story, the Herod of the rest of the Gospels. Herod had a brother who's mentioned here, Philip, who had a wife, Herodias. Herodias was not only his sister-in-law, Herodias was also the son of one of his brothers, so Herodias was also his niece. One day, Herod Antipas, traveling to Rome, visits his brother Philip, who's not one of the four ruling Herods. Philip's just hanging out in one of the coastal cities, enjoying the luxury of being one of the part of Herod's family. So Herod Antipas shows up at Philip's house. He sees his wife Herodias, who's also his niece, his sister-in-law, falls, in, falls for her, lusts for her, infatuated by her. She falls for him. So she begins to work out this plan that a sick, ambitious woman would work out in this situation. If I can get rid of Philip, then I can go be with Herod Antipas, be his wife, and I can, I can be married to one of the ruling Herods, not my loser husband, Philip, who's not ruling over anything. And so she manipulates and connives and makes it happen. And she ends up married to Herod Antipas. So this leaves Philip without a wife, and Herod gets rid of Herod Antipas' wife, and they get married. Now, Herod is a Jew who is ruling over the Jews as his political leader for the Roman government, representing the Jewish people. Herod Antipas wanted to be called a king like his dad. The Romans would never do it. It drove him crazy his entire life. And then Herod, as a Jew, commits this horrific act of immorality by marrying his sister niece, sister-in-law niece, making a mockery of the Old Testament commands of marriage and divorce. And the only living prophet at the time, John the Baptist, does what prophets did throughout the Old Testament, call the Jewish political leader to account. This is wrong, Herod. This is sinful, what you and Herodias have done. Well, this infuriated Herodias. And like Jezebel in the Old Testament, who was a queen who wanted to kill an Old Testament prophet Elijah, she wanted him dead. She couldn't. She couldn't kill him. Because her husband had this strange fascination with John the Baptist, as we'll look at in a little bit. So like all good manipulative women, she has to figure out a way to play her husband. And so the scene that begins to... In a scene that begins to hint at the political machinery that will send Jesus to the cross, you have this sick scene play out at a birthday party for Herod. Herodias' daughter, Salome, comes in. We know her name from the Gospel of Luke. We assume that she was a teenager. She performs this sensual dance that drove Herod and the other men crazy. This is a dance that wasn't usually done by those who were part of the, the royal party. This would be done by the prostitutes and the slaves. So this was an extra special sick treat to have the queen's daughter performing this dance. And Herod, who's going to be a Herod, driven by his insatiable lust, offers her up to half of his kingdom. So now Herodias has him right where she wants him. And through Salome, you have this very tense, filled moment asking for the head of John the Baptist. In fact, in the original Greek, the, the name John the Baptist is the last part of the sentence. So it's like Salome the teenager tells Herod this, I want you to give me at once on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And what could Herod do? He was fascinated by John, but, but come on, this Old Testament weird prophet who... Wears camel's hair and eats locusts and wild honey and lives in the wilderness is nothing compared 
to the favor and the approval of his generals and his military leaders and commanders and his political ambitions. There's no way, as far as he could see, that he could say no to this request. But it was not an easy decision. It haunted him. And like Pilate would later, Herod capitulated to the sinful desires of others and had an innocent man slaughtered so he could save face with Herodias smirking in the background. The disciples, it tells us, verse 29, of John, they heard the sad news, they came and got his body, and they honored him in death and burial. And this, this flashback scene that Mark tells us happens previous to Jesus coming into this region and proclaiming the gospel. So, so, so back to the present day of, of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is doing miracles, he's doing amazing things, and, and the, the word is spreading about his ministry, word of his miracles and power is spreading, and eventually Herod hears about this Jesus. John's dead, but here comes this other guy, Jesus, doing amazing things. And we see Herod haunted by a guilty conscience, if you go back to verse 14. Of chapter 6, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, his works of Jesus, this man Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. These were the common theories about who Jesus was. He's John the Baptist raised. He's Elijah reappearing. He's another prophet of God showing up. No one could deny his power. He has to be somebody amazing. But few believed in him as Messiah. For Herod, there was only one answer. Maybe one hope. John has been raised and my idiotic mistake has been fixed. But of course, that is the wishful thinking of a fool. And John was dead. And so from this story, let's walk through some implications and applications, primarily through the lens of the two main characters, John the Baptist and Herod. So, so first, through John, see that faith in Jesus will send us on a mission that will not always be easy, but it will end well. Faith in Jesus will always send us on a mission that will not always be easy, but it will end well. I know what you're thinking. He's beheaded. What do you mean it ends well? Just hang on. Jesus has been doing amazing miracles in, in Mark chapter 5. He, we, we looked at those, this, this calming of the storm at the end of chapter 4, this uh, healing and, and casting out demons, thousands of demons from the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, this, this healing of the woman with the issue of blood, this raising of the dead of, of Jairus' daughter. And, and, and now he comes to his hometown of Nazareth, we looked at this last week, and, and he doesn't get the fanfare, he doesn't get the, the, the red carpet parade, the ticker tape parade, he, he gets to scorn the rejection of his hometown. We know this guy. He's not anything special about him. We don't know how he can do what he can do, but he's, he's not the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't do many miracles in Nazareth because they don't believe, they reject him. And then we saw last week, Jesus sent out his twelve and told them to go two by two to the surrounding villages and towns and proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel in power and action by casting out demons and healing people. And he tells them, if you come to a place where they will not receive you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the town. That's a form of rejection and judgment on those people because they have rejected the gospel. 
Because guys, you're, you're going to face this. Even though I'm Jesus and I have this amazing power and ability, I'm facing rejection already from my hometown. I'm sending you out. You're going to face rejection. And it could be rejection that ends in death. Allah, John the Baptist. It's interesting for these 12 to hear this because one day this would in fact happen for most of these men. Faithful to Jesus, proclaiming the gospel in word and power, and they end up dying for this mission. Don't get comfortable crossing church. Don't think you're safe because it's 2016 and we live in America. Now, Jesus will tell us later in Mark's gospel the cost we must be willing to pay to follow him and join him on mission. So we're going to keep coming back to this again and again. But, but some of you may say, wait, wait, wait. John the Baptist didn't die for preaching the gospel. He died because he was meddling in the personal life of a political leader. If he would have just stuck to preaching the gospel and not meddling, he would have kept his head, Right? And this is a common justification Christians even today will, will give for not engaging in the public sphere. We, we just preach the gospel. We just call sinners to repent. We don't publicly share opinions on political or social or moral issues in the public square. We don't speak about the lives of public officials, right? Well, let's, let's think through some things. First, we know definitely that sharing the gospel in a way to convert non-Christians is one way to experience persecution. In other words, to call people sinners, which we all are, to call them to turn from their sins and repentance and turn to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation is one way to experience persecution. This was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The Jews were not believing that Jesus is the resurrected Savior and Messiah. They rejected Jesus. Stephen told them that unless they believe in Jesus, they cannot be saved, and they killed him. Stoned him to death. And since that time, there have been thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus who were killed or persecuted specifically because they were Christian. And the culture in which they were proclaiming the message of Christ rejected this message and, and wiped them out. Their lifestyle, their message was offensive to a particular culture of people in power and they were silenced or imprisoned or exiled or banned. Secondly, we know that sharing the gospel applied to issues is another way to experience persecution. In other words, the gospel is who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. The gospel applied is, okay, this is the difference that it makes in life. This is how it speaks to the sins of an individual or a culture or society. And so either one can bring persecution. This is the Old Testament prophets. We're proclaiming the truth about God, the holiness, the righteousness, the glory of God, and how it is an offense for you Israelites or you king whoever to be committing these sins against our holy, righteous God. Repent or perish. And many of the Old Testament prophets would suffer because of them proclaiming the gospel applied, the truth of God applied. If you're John the Baptist, you're holding a public leader accountable for leading a people who are greatly offended by his sinful lifestyle. He's doing great damage to the people culturally. John the Baptist is holding them to account. He's going to be persecuted. Okay, so preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel applied to issues and sinful issues in a culture will bring persecution. Now, now a third thing we need to know, not all suffering we experience is persecution for being a Christian. 
All right? Just because you go through a bad time, it's not because anybody's persecuting you for, for being a Christian. Matthew 5, 43-46, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who, do, who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So in the context of loving those who hate and persecute you, Jesus mentions that the sun rises on the evil and the good. And the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In other words, good things don't happen just to God's people. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to enjoy your family, to enjoy food, to laugh, to have success in your business, to be be wealthy or prosperous. There are those who are not God's people because of God's common grace, who benefit, who fall under God's common grace, who experience good things in life. You also um, don't have to, to, to only be a, a person who's not a follower of Jesus to experience the suffering of the world. So, so the people of God don't just receive the good things, and the people of God aren't exempt from suffering. Followers of Jesus suffer as well. Sometimes we suffer not because we're Christian, but because we're human. And we live in a sin-cursed world. You as a Christian... Don't have this protective bubble around you that keeps bad things from happening to you. It's not true. No matter how much faith you have, how many seeds of faith you sow, how many times you come to church or pray or read your Bible, none of that protects you from bad things that can happen in this world. But don't automatically see that as persecution. And I lost my job. Maybe you lost your job because you're an idiot. And you, you weren't good at your job. Not because you were a Christian. I got the worst service when I try to call Comcast. Persecution. It's Comcast. It's what they do. Fourthly, the Bible does not seem to make a distinction between persecution for being a Christian by sharing the gospel or applying the gospel to real situations. It's it's all persecution. Whether it's because you share the gospel or because you applied the gospel to a sinful situation. So like in Esther we saw a few weeks ago, the Jews were targeted just because they were Jews. Saul, before he became Paul, were targeting, he was targeting the early Christians because they were saying there was another way of salvation outside the traditions and teachings of Jewish religious leaders. Outside of being Jews. They, he was persecuting followers of the way, followers of Jesus, just because they were followers of Jesus. You see this clearly in a place like Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews 11 walks us back to the Old Testament, commending a variety of individuals for their faith in God. Abel, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Sarah, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to the Israelites, to Rahab. And then you have this summary statement beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and the caves of the earth. Notice the varieties of ways they demonstrated faith, which led to the varieties of ways they suffered. He tells us, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice. That's not just proclaiming the gospel. That's seeing that the gospel is being applied to specific situations so that justice would reign. So, so the goodness of the gospel will be, be experienced by a culture, by a people. In this recent debate on the racial tensions in our nation, I've read some Christians say something like this. It's just a gospel issue or a sin issue. All we need to do is preach the gospel and call sinners to repentance. It's not a skin color issue. It's a sin issue. Just focus on the gospel. And look, when you boil it all down to the root issue, that is correct. It, it is ultimately a sin issue. Everything that is wrong in the world is ultimately a sin issue. Cancer, tornadoes, hurricanes, racism, abortion, greed, wars, selfishness, pride, ego, divorce, sickness, floods. It's all evidence the world is cursed by sin. But what happens for some is they simply say the suffering of some because of racial inequalities that do exist or the suffering of some because of the abortion industry or suffering of some because of systematic poverty is simply a gospel or sin issue. That becomes their way out of doing anything about it. We don't have to engage because it's just sin. It's just the gospel. Just keep doing what we're doing. But it's the gospel that changes us and makes us a people who bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the gospel that transforms us into a people who do love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also love our neighbor as ourselves. And so how can we sit back in silence, hiding behind the gospel, when anybody around us is suffering? And we have the ability to speak up for them, especially because we have a position that gives us more ability to do something about it. John the Baptist didn't have to speak about the personal life of Herod. But like all Old Testament prophets before him, he called out the sin of the political leaders of God's people and he suffered. And so, so what do we do? What do we do then? Fifthly, we definitely are called to share the gospel no matter what we face or what the laws of the land say. Okay? We are to proclaim the reality of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, no matter where we're at. Laws of Russia have recently been changed just this past week. New anti-evangelism laws have gone into effect. Now, now understand, in Russia, they're called anti-terrorism laws. They require missionaries to have permits. House churches are illegal. Religious activity is limited to registered buildings. Individuals can be fined up to $780. Organizations can be fined up to $15,000. And you know what happens in countries when you don't pay your fines. You end up in prison. A few years ago in Soma School in Tacoma, one of the couples that were there were from Russia. And she's been posting on this Facebook page that, that they, somebody started after the Soma School that it's more than just registering, it's making evangelism illegal in Russia. 
something that was illegal during the whole reign of the Soviet Union that collapsed in the early 90s for the last 20 years has been this just incredible freedom for the gospel in Russia. And as of this past week, it's clamped down. It's gone. Now somehow, some way, they're going to share the gospel. We have to. It's who we are. It's what we do. If they're fined, if they're imprisoned, if, they're, if it's worse, just as we've seen from our brothers and sisters in China, they will continue to share the gospel. But that doesn't mean God is calling them to march to the Kremlin and to call out Vladimir Putin for his immoral indiscretions and his sins in his personal life. So what we see is we aren't always called to share the gospel applied in every situation or call all people to account. Like John the Baptist was called by God to hold Herod accountable as a Jewish leader of the Jewish people publicly for committing these offensive sins. Jesus said nothing to Pilate or Herod about the sins of their personal life. Old Testament prophets regularly called kings and nations to to repentance for their sins. Yet Paul writes later in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, who is amazingly sinful. And we know from Romans 13, the governments have been ordained by God as his ministers of his justice and authority that we are to respect and submit to. So, so what is it? Do we call out our, personal, our, our public leaders publicly for the sins in their personal life or the sins in their public life? Or do we honor them and pray for them and and submit to their authority. So this is where we spend time in prayer. We trust the Spirit to lead us as a body of His people to engage on public issues as the Spirit leads. We have freedom in America to still publicly demonstrate or publicly speak or publicly share our opinions and views and, and urge people to vote for people who hold those views. We can, we can do that as citizens of our country. Those freedoms haven't been taken away. As a pastor, we can speak clearly on issues of injustice and immorality, speak clearly against racism, abortion, greed, gluttony, domestic abuse, and and so forth. Other issues are less clear. So we don't speak with the same conviction about tax laws and tax proposals and trade deficits and foreign policies and who to vote for in elections. Like we would like to remain a nation where we experience the religious liberty that Russia has for the last 20 years. But if our laws change one day in the name of anti-terrorism or hate crimes legislation or in the name of law and order, we will continue to do our work as the people of God. Why? Because we have a mission that will not always be easy. We should never expect it to be easy, but it will always end well. Again, he's beheaded. How can that be ending well? So you have to take a long view in situations like this, a long view of time, a long perspective on power and authority. You have to see your life as more than this 70, 80 years that you're given. Like if your life is all about this life and your life is all about peace and joy and comfort and prosperity and and, and quality of life now, if if that's what you're given to, if that's what you're all about, if that's what you're living for, then yeah, being beheaded, that's a bad way to end. That's not very comfortable. It's not very pleasing. It's horrible. 
But if your life is more than just this life, if your life sees your life in terms of eternity, the eternal perspective, everlasting life, you see that losing your head is not the worst thing that can happen to you. You, in fact, get to go be with the Lord. That's never bad. And so John the Baptist did not live life for this life. By God's grace, he lived life with eternity in view. So he could willingly lay down this life for the mission that God sent him on to accomplish God's purposes, even if it cost him his life. The safety of your life, the safety of your family and friends, the quality, if that's what your life is all about, then you are going to compromise for the mission of God so that you can have safety and comfort and quality. But if eternity and the treasures and rewards of eternity is what your life is all about, then you will live for the applause of heaven and not the applause of men. Jesus would say in Matthew 16, 24-26, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Herod wanted the world's approval and lost his soul. John did not need or want the world's approval. And therefore, he would get the sword of the world and be okay. Because Jesus had his soul. I mean, think about how this was received by the original readers of Mark. Christians being persecuted in Rome by Nero. Being targeted, blamed, killed for the sins of Nero. This maniacal political leader who let Rome burn, and instead of taking the blame himself, blamed it on the Christians. So now the Christians are being rounded up, killed, fed to animals, uh, doused with oil, stuck on spears, and, and lighting the, the, the roadways of Rome. And these people who receive the Gospel of Mark are watching their brothers or sisters or family members experience this kind of persecution, and now they read about John the Baptist. And they're encouraged. And they're emboldened. And they're comforted by his life and by what he went through. This call of radical obedience, guys, in the Gospel of Mark is only beginning. So buckle up to the rest of the Gospel of Mark. It's only going to grow in intensity. All right, through Herod, that was John, through Herod, see that faith in Jesus is not the same as curiosity, a pricked conscience, or admission of God's power. Faith in Jesus is not the same as curiosity, a pricked conscience, or admission of God's power. Herod is a fascinating story. Like, many people read this story, and poor John. John's a tragic figure. I feel sorry for John. Even though he was beheaded, John was good. He was good. He immediately went to the presence of the Lord. The tragic figure in this story is Herod. Look at how it describes his interaction with John, beginning in verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod feared John and kept him safe from his crazy wife, 
Herodias. Why? Because he knew he was a righteous and holy man. He was fascinated by John the Baptist. Like who else comes into the court of this ruler who has a thumbs up, thumbs down over his life telling me how sinful I am and I need to repent? Who else does this? Who would have the gumption and the guile to confront me for my sins? And, and John the Baptist, he's not a military leader. He's not bringing an army with him. He's not conquered anyone by the sword. He has no political power. He has no educational pedigree. And yet here he is pointing his bony, bony finger in my face, telling me I'm sinful. This fascinated a man of such power, like Herod Antipas. It says in verse 20, he heard him gladly. It's a very strong word in the original language of the New Testament that, that speaks of how much he liked John, how sweet he thought his words were. But then it also says in verse 20, he was perplexed. This word in the original language gives this idea of wavering, teetering, going back and forth, indecisive. So picture this. Here's John calling one of the political rulers to account for his sins, a man who had the power to kill him. And Herod, on the one hand, likes this. Check this guy out. Look what he's doing. But on the other hand, it's leading him to be very indecisive and perplexed. Maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe I am wrong. Maybe I do need to repent and turn from my sins and follow this man. Like, who knows? Who knows how close Herod was to true repentance and salvation? When Salome made her request in verse 26, it tells us that Herod was exceedingly sorry. Great, so he was caught in an impossible dilemma, dilemma for a man like him, for a political leader of his day. And so when Jesus shows up, Herod is haunted by John and believes that Jesus is John raised from the dead, hoping beyond hope that his mistake was corrected. Now, this is not the last we see of Herod. Later in the Gospels, Jesus is arrested and brought before the Jewish religious leaders who condemn him to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. He's brought before Pilate, who questions him some and then sends him to Herod because Herod was the Galilean leader. So this man's from Galilee, you deal with him, Herod. And we read in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But he, Jesus, made no answer. And my son has gotten this little nickname from, from some stone-cold Hawthorne. He just kind of stares at you, right? There's nothing compared to Jesus. Just, just staring back at Herod. I'm I'm giving you nothing. Nothing. And so the chief priests and scribes stood by accusing him, and Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him, and Jesus in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Herod wanted to see the show. He wanted to hear the man, and what, what did Jesus give him? He gave him nothing. Just as in Nazareth, Jesus could not do, would not do many miracles because the people's hearts were hard. So now with Herod, Jesus goes stone cold silent because Herod's heart could no longer be saved. Guys, that's tragic. 
Th- that is tragic. Losing your life and going to be with Jesus, not tragic. It's good. Sad for those you leave behind, sure. But overall, it's good. But to get to the point where your heart is so hard that not even Jesus himself will proclaim the gospel to you. I wonder how close Harry came to salvation with John, only to lose it forever. You see, Herod saw in John a man of God who was righteous, holy, and he feared him. He gladly heard his teaching, but none of that was salvific. None of that saved him. That's not saving faith. Like how many people do we know who see Jesus as holy and righteous and enjoy the teachings of Jesus that they know? They respect him. But that, again, does not equal saving faith. Like, even to the point that they are indecisive and wavering. Like, you probably know people like this. You're sharing the gospel with them. They're coming face to face with the reality that they are sinful. They are a sinner like you, like me. They need a Savior. Surely it's Jesus. Like, who else is like Jesus? Who else has done what he's done? Nobody is like him. Maybe he's the Savior, and they're at this this crossroads where they can see, if I follow him, I'm going to have to completely change my life. I'm going to have to give up certain things I don't want to give up. And they're teetering and indecisive. How many people do we know like that? Should I, shouldn't I follow Jesus? Saving faith is when you follow Jesus. When you go all in on Jesus. You turn from sin and you wholeheartedly pursue Jesus and you're resting, you're placing all of your faith, your trust for life and forgiveness and eternity on Jesus. It's all him. It's not what I can do. It's not how good I can be. It's Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus for salvation and life and hope and peace and rest. Herod had curiosity. His conscience was pricked. He admired the power and evidence of God in John's life, but none of that saved him. And eventually he turned away and was lost forever. Now let me interject one more episode from John's life. There was a time when John too was wavering, teetering. Probably not as much as Herod. But there was some indecisiveness in John. Some doubt, you would say. Matthew 11, 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Wait a second. John has already declared to everybody he's the one. He's already said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's already said, there's one coming mightier than me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's already said, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now he's in prison, and he's unsure? What? What? Like we think doubt is a bad thing. If I have doubt, I must not have faith. No, you only have doubt because you have faith. I heard Russell Moore tell this story this past week about a young man in seminary who came to his office one day and says, look, I don't think I'm a Christian. Like every day, I wake up questioning whether or not all of this is real. Dr. Moore, who was head of the the dean of the School of Theology at Southern Seminary at the time, told the young man, I do too. No, you don't understand, Dr. Moore. I might be an apostate. Like, I have doubts all the time that, is this real? Like, there's part of me that's tempted to just cast it all aside because it can't possibly be true and just go out and get as drunk as I possibly can. Dr. Moore was like, that's how I feel. 
Because if it's not true, then, then we are hopelessly lost. We're to be pitied. The presence and reality of doubt is not something that condemns you. It helps assure you that you have true faith. But you press through that to live with this mixture of faith and doubt. Even John the Baptist had that. So he sent word to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Herod's wavering or doubts could not be overcome because his life was built on his ego, his power, his pride and ultimately he had to worship that and sacrifice John. John's wavering or doubts could be overcome because his life was built on Christ. Worshiping Christ. One came close and turned away. One came close and pressed further, even into death. By God's grace, may God's Spirit embolden the people of the Crossing Church so that we are characterized with the faith of John the Baptist. We could even stare death in the face and be okay because we have Christ. We're living that much for eternity. May God help us be gracious and bold as we proclaim the gospel to the Herods in our life who see Jesus as someone to be admired and is causing them to count the cost, but they have not left everything to follow him. May we graciously press them and pursue them. And may God save them before it's too late. Before it's too late. If you're here this morning and you realize you are a sinner who needs a Savior, and you see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, this God-man who is perfect in every way, holy in every way, yet gave his life willingly, sacrificially for your sins. And you today want to believe in Jesus and turn from sin and turn to Jesus and trust him as Savior and follow him to death. And I tell you, today is the day of your salvation. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ. Leave everything and follow him and give your life away for this king. He is worth it. And if that's you, do not leave this place today without letting somebody know that's where you're at. Because we want to celebrate and we want to disciple you. We want to teach you how to go and share the gospel and disciple others. But in a moment, we're going to read a prayer and have a time of confession and repentance. And we're going to come again to the table and remember the body and the blood of our Savior who makes all of this possible. Father, we are grateful for Jesus in ways beyond what we can even imagine or name. There are so many sins in us that we aren't even aware of. Much less the sins that we know about and we fail to confess or repent of. So pour out your grace abundantly, freely, fully this morning on this place, on us. Remind us again of the gospel. Remind us again of the goodness and the saving work of Jesus so that again we can repent 
And again, we can experience the sweet aroma of our Savior. And Father, I pray for anyone who's here who's never truly come alive in Jesus. He's only been a curiosity. He's only been a nice guy. He's done good things. They've never turned from sin to trust in Jesus for everything. God, I ask that you would save them today for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.